Um, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard, but the ESV is really close. Uh, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'll read this chapter, and then we'll get into it. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning till midday. You know, I was going to have you guys stand up while, while we did this, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood six guys on the right hand, seven guys on the, on the left hand. I'm Irish, not Jewish. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also all these guys in chapter 7 explained the law, to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to your Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households, of all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills, bring olive branches, wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it was written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily 
from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Father, your word is great. We stand in front of you, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that I would handle correctly your word. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, as we've asked that we would gain insight and that our eyes would see you, Lord, and that we would know you. We love you, we thank you, and we thank you that you are a great father that delights in your children. We love you in Jesus' name. So before I jump into the text, I wanted to give a shout out to Nehemiah's leadership because he did some amazing things, a godly leader, one who loved his people, and one who commemorated to his God everything that he gave to him. He united a community behind a large endeavor, right? Building the walls in 52 days. He motivated the people to come together for a common goal. He was uncompromising against outside influences. He boldly confronted the spiritual enemies that sought to hinder the work through prayer. He surveyed the situation. He gathered information and he used wisdom to plan. He was sensitive to the needs of the poor and confronted those who took advantage of them. He inspired the people to protect one another. And he set a personal example of commitment to God. And his personal conduct and character left him without reproach. Plus, he demanded that from others. However, there was something he could not do. For what I speak of is only reserved for God. It is God's right and it is God's privilege to work within the heart of his people. It is intention to align our hearts with his heart and his will. And it is his pleasure to do so. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Man can motivate. Man can inspire. But only God has the power of supernatural change in the heart. So in the book of Amos, God speaks of a plumb line. Now, I spared no expense. <laughs> oh, this is bad. A plumb line is a weight suspended from a string to ensure that a structure is centered and lined up. So it, it doesn't really spin like that, but you're supposed to like keep it. Right? So God's word speaks of the plumb line. It is what he uses to deal with the human heart. The plumb line ensures all angles are right, justified, and fixed. 
we're tilted, he uses the plumb line to align us back with him. Kind of get it? Can anybody see that? Okay. That took me five minutes. God's plumb line represents God's standard by which a faith community, and I'm going to underline, needs to live by. And it is also the measure from which God's judgment is determined. 1 Peter 4.17 states this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if you are born again, regenerate, you have the Holy Spirit who guides you into all truth and graciously forms the image of Christ in you so that Jesus is exalted in our lives. We know the standard. Jesus himself lived it perfectly. Yet just like in the days of Nehemiah, it is hard, as Rick said last week, to follow with all the business, with all the stuff, with all the spirit of the age bombarding us and dealing with us. And guess what? I get in the way too. Don't I? Well, you guys don't know that. <laughs> you guys might get in the way. I get in the way of God aligning me, but God will bring me back. In navigation, I think Bob knows this as an aviator, the rule in 160 says this, that for every one degree of error, every 60 miles, you lose a mile of distance. What do, what do I mean by that? So in 500 miles, how far will I be off in each degree in 60 miles? So what this says to me is that so small actions over time can make a huge difference in reaching your destination. So remember in what I read, they hadn't done the Feast of Booths since Joshua. This is what happened in Joshua's time. All of Joshua's generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. I thought about our country. 1968, in the early 70s, all the things that happened, Roe versus Wade, no prayer in school. It's been over 40 years, and we see the effect of not having God in our lives, right? But we are not lost. We can stray, but we are not lost, brothers and sisters. Only God does what he does. The creator, the one who speaks ex nihilo, Latin, for out of nothing, out of nothing he creates. He is the one who brings alignment to our hearts. In this chapter, God works in his people through his holy word into their hearts. Jeremiah says this, is not my word like a hammer? Is not my word like a fire that shatters the rock 
takes away the dross. This is what God's word does. The hard parts of our heart, the, the, the dirt, the stuff. This is what God's doing in this chapter. And this is what he does with us. So Ezra took his place at the podium. And I'm going to bring out three things when he read the word. Three things that happened, I think, in this chapter that God does with us. The word of God brings restoration and revival. Does anybody need some restoring? The word of God brings revelation. And the word of God provides the framework and the support for our relationships. So as Ezra took his place at the podium at the Watergate, it is a, an amazing prophetic picture. It's not the Watergate that Nixon knew, but none of you young people even know what that is, do you? The Watergate was the place where 90% of the water came into the, the city. It was the place of life. And as Ezra stood above the people, it was the word of God, not the word of man, that was being lifted up and honored. And the people said, yes, amen, let it be so. And they bowed to the ground and worshiped God. And I can't help but think of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Everyone who drinks of this water, the well he was talking about, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Restoration in God is not just returning something to its former condition. In God, restoration is always receiving back more than has been lost to the point where the final state is greater than the original. My friend Tim bought a 1967 Chevelle. In 1967, the quarter mile that that car could run was 14.9 seconds. Not so bad. But Tim restored that car. And he runs a, a 10 second quarter mile. That's what God does with us. We're not the original state anymore, brothers and sisters. We can run the quarter mile a lot faster. And revival, for me, says that the awakening, it, it means the awakening of God's people to their true nature and their true purpose. So as Ezra read the word, God cleansed. God corrected. God reproved. Do you know the difference between correction and reproved? Okay, check it out. So I say to Noah, don't go out into the street. You could get hit by a car. That's correction. You know what reproving is? He keeps walking out on the street. The word of God spanks him. 
And that's what God was doing that day as Ezra was reading the word. But it also instructed them in his ways. It encouraged them. Put courage in them. It equipped them to deal with life situations, to stay on the narrow path. It gave wisdom. And it gave the way of salvation. And so the people wept. For they knew that they weren't centered or aligned to God. And it is right to be grieved. It is. However, God doesn't want us to stay there as we see in this chapter. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. My friend said this when he was teaching his children. He said, don't say, don't say you're sorry. We always say we're sorry. Stop doing it. Little different, isn't it? That's repentance. That's the difference. We can feel sorry, but if we don't do anything about it, it brings worldly death. It's sin, right? And it brings death. It brings spiritual death. It brings relational death. It brings the whole gamut. But if we repent, if we take our action, we're changed. So in verse 9, they said, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Have no regret. Why? For God is among you. Don't weep. God is among you. Go, eat of the fat. Drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. To me, this is God's grace. This is God's grace. It is his kindness and mercy that leads us to repentance, and it aligns us with him. He is not overlooking sin, brothers and sisters. That's not what this is. And there's this popular song. I think I've said it up here before. It drives me crazy. In the verse, it says this, smile like you just got away with something. Why? Because you just got away with something. Ever since, ever since, grace got you. That is not grace. That is a popular Christian song. It's on all the time. And I go, I just go, I, stop that. Grace is not getting what you deserve. That is what grace is. And I love Psalm 30, verse 5. It says, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. So the joy of the Lord is your strength. I have a different like take on it, if you guys don't mind. We talk about the, the joy that, that is inherent when the Holy Spirit 
comes into us. But I want to say this. Do you enjoy God's work in you? Do you enjoy God's work in you? So Paul stated this in in Romans chapter 7. He said this, For I joyfully concur with the law of God concerning the inner man, my heart. There is nothing more wonderful as a father than when my sons know my heart. You're going to make me cry. (laughs) And they're one with me. That's what God's doing. I'm going to bring you back. That's what he's doing in this chapter. I'm going to bring you back to my heart. So God's word brings also revelation. Revelation is that which was hidden, now brought to light by God himself, an uncovering of what was obscurely seen. The word of God is not just a history of God's revelation. It is revelation for us now. Do you believe that? We need to see. Jesus said in Revelation to the church in Laodicea that you needed eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And we use the word transcended a lot. That he is otherly. My definition of transcendent is this. You can't grasp him. You can't grasp him. You can't know him. In the transcendent word, but there's another word, imminent. And that God is knowable and graspable. For he shows you who he is. Everything that you know about God, it's because he showed you. So there's no arrogance. There's no puffing up of knowledge. There's no, you know, there are smart, way smarter people than me. But God showed them that. And so the heads of the household gathered that they might gain insight. And they discovered that it was the time for the Feast of Booze. Was it simple obedience that they did? It could have been. But maybe they gained revelation. His salvation from Egypt. That's what the feast was. It spoke of God himself. His provision in the wilderness, and their success in Canaan was wholly on the account of God's grace. Living in booze reminded them that they needed to trust him alone for their supply. I wonder if one of the kids said this, hey, didn't Abraham say that God would supply the sacrifice? that their eyes would be open to see what God did. We don't have time to go there, but in Luke, the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus, and they were sad, for Jesus had died, and this guy comes along aside with them. Hey, 
What's going on? That's what the guy said. You don't know? What do you mean you don't know? And they started walking. And Jesus, from the beginning of the prophets to the end, began to open up their eyes to the scriptures. How amazing. Right? But here's the thing, guys. That's us. We don't have to be the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Every time you open the book, Lord, open my eyes. Paul probably knew all 613 laws of the Torah. There were 613 of them. Yet it wasn't until he was knocked off his horse and he asked, who are you, Lord, that he saw. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Man, that's amazing. And he said this, I neither received the gospel from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We need that. We need to see. And I love this. In chapter 3 of Philippians, uh, the heading on my chapter is the goal of life. And he said this, that I may know him. That's the goal of life, that I may know him. Lord, as Paul prayed, may the eyes of our heart be enlightened so that we may see. The third thing that I saw in this was that the word provides the framework the support, and the guide for the relationships that we all have in the church. Oh, and out there. The relationship with us to God, man and woman, husband and wife, friend to friend, fathers and mothers to children, children to parents, older to younger, younger to older, boss to employee, brother to brother, sister to brother, Leaders to flock, flock to leaders, believing and the unbelieving. It was all there. So as Ezra was reading those 613 laws, there were ceremonial laws, us and God, moral laws, us and each other, and civil laws, things that you shouldn't do, right? You get the idea. But I love the picture of the guys that I couldn't read the, the names. They were Levites, part of the priesthood. They would go around and they would talk to people. They would go to the kid, the five-year-old. Hey, do you know what, what he's understanding? Do you know what he's understanding? The old lady, do you know what he's understanding? you know, I will tell you, and you will have more insight. That is discipleship. And guess what? Who's the priest now? We all are. What a wonderful picture it is. So our opinions must bow down to the word of God. We, 
the Levites weren't talking about the opinion. Well, this is what I think it means. No, 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 no. It was the insight of the word of God that strengthened them, that helped them, that encouraged them, that gave them faith. And the church is made strong through discipleship. It's not micromanaging. It's not the 613 laws. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. There were so many people in my life that, that discipled me. And I have had the pleasure and the privilege of doing that for others. What, did you, what do you think of that word? And we, we discuss it and we talk about it. And we get into theology about it. That's when Matt says study the word. It's those things. It's not that you will gain here, you will gain here. And guess what? Everything you gain here is for someone else. That's what discipleship is. In Psalm 51, and I'll close here, and we'll take communion. David was talking about his sin, but he also talked about restoration in, in that psalm. And he talked about revelation in that psalm. But there was one thing that's really weird at the very end, because he's talking about him, but he says this, by thy favor, do good to Zion, Lord, build up the walls of Jerusalem. What? It, it makes no context for me, except for this. I believe it's spiritual. Build up the walls of my people, Lord. Deal with us here so that the enemy can't come in, so that the enemy can't wreak havoc, so they can't rob, kill, and destroy. And I'll end with this. The Lord says this, so my word, which goes forth from my mouth, will not turn to, return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and with, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The Lord is always at work in your heart, dealing with you, and it's it's what I said today, and probably not so well, the refiner's fire. It's a patient work, brothers and sisters. It's our whole life that he's working on us. But at, and as he sits in front of the metal and he takes out the dross, how he knows it's ready, he can see his face perfectly in it. And that's what he's doing to us. He's conforming us into the image of the wonderful son. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, please. The word of God. It's the plumb line. It's powerful. It's powerful. It aligns us with God's heart. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you that you 
so care for us that you don't leave us and you don't forsake us. And you take pleasure in our hearts and dealing with our hearts and conforming us to the image of your son. Lord, everyone's at different places here. I pray right now that you would open up the eyes of our hearts that we would see you. That you would restore, as Rick has said for the last, I think, two or three weeks, restore the joy of my salvation. Gosh, I remember at the Grateful Dead concert when God came to me and the word of God hit me like a hammer, as it says, I wept because I knew I deserved hell. I knew. But the next day, I was ready to go tell everybody everything. It was totally, I mean, it was totally different. That's what restoration does. That's what God's word does. It revives us to who we are. Man, it, it was like, it was like my first kid. I'm, I'm putting gas in. I go, hey, I just had a kid. That's what I did with Jesus. Hey, I just met Jesus. Have you met Jesus? Have you met Jesus? Have you met Jesus? I want that back. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of my salvation. Let us see and let our relationships be that which you have talked about, Lord. We love you and we thank you. Amen? Amen. go hey what was that term you used about opinion opinion what was the phrase you said i uh, said about opinions oh, yeah i said my opinion must bow down to the word of god my opinion must bow down to the word of god and there are a lot of opinions out there i have a million opinions and i voice them very regularly ask my wife my opinion, your opinions, must bow down to the Word of God. And if we hold to the Word of God, it will still and quiet all of these other, all these other opinions. I want to read a very sobering text before we sing and before we take the communion elements back to our seats. Um, as Kevin was preaching, this text came to my mind out of 1 Corinthians 10, and it's a warning to the church in Corinth um, regarding idolatry. And Paul said this. He said, therefore, my beloved, I like that he starts with that, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, this cup that we're going to participate in, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. 
Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? Of course they are. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? How does that apply to us today? When we take communion together, we are participating in an eternal reality. When we leave these doors today and we go about our lives and then we fellowship in the ways that we do with the world, we're participating in an eternal reality. And it's an admonition from God. If the word of God is truth, as Kevin preached, which we know that it is, if the law of God breaks our hearts and conforms our hearts into the heart of God, we know that it does, then, then that word must be, at this time in our lives, the supreme guide and, as Kevin said, the supreme means of measuring our lives, not what the world is offering and saying. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful in what we participate in in our daily lives. It is not without eternal ramification in a, in a, in a very real sense. And the term grateful dead, is that an oxymoron? You can't be dead and be grateful. You can't participate in death and be filled with joy. Is this making sense to you? Be careful in what you give your hearts to. Be careful what you allow your minds and your thoughts and your, your emotions to be given to and your attention and your time. Let's come to the table of the Lord today with joy, with faith, with earnestness, with repentance, with a, a desire to participate in that which is eternally true in God.